in some ways, this pandemic is like a crisis on top of a crisis, right, for an individual who's seeking asylum. When a public health crisis requires you to shelter in place, but you have no stable place, and so many of the other agencies you receive support from are temporarily closed or have gone virtual, what do you do? Welcome to a special series of Beyond Soundbites podcast. I'm Jacob Bell. If you're a new listener, this podcast seeks to humanize the issues of forced displacement and mass migration by bringing forth the personhood of displaced people through stories and voices. Earlier episodes introduced people from the Middle East, Central Asia, and Central America. Survive. It was like that, just surviving. Hello, Jacob. How are you? It's difficult for me to engage people in conversations about immigration because it's deeply personal. This series, beginning in episode 13, is a little bit different. We'll hear some brief words in each episode from people around the globe who are doing frontline work with communities of displaced people during COVID-19. The goal is to introduce you to what some of the pressure points are in different regions so we can unite together in prayer and, when possible, take concrete, supportive action. I pray that in the midst of our own lonesomeness and fear, we won't cease to look toward people in the margins of society and take actions to care for them as we ourselves would want to be cared for. Let's get started. In the last episode, we heard insights from Abara Frontiers, an organization based in El Paso, Texas, about how COVID-19 is affecting the asylum seekers who have bottlenecked in Mexican border communities as a result of the Remain in Mexico policy. Today, we'll get a glimpse of how the crisis is affecting another group of asylum seekers, those who have already entered the U.S. and are currently waiting for their hearings to proceed. So I'm located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I serve... S.J. Holstein works as a ministry leader for the International Association for Refugees. In partnership with local churches, she and her teammates run a housing program for asylum seekers called Jonathan House. I asked S.J. to catch us up on some of the challenges asylum seekers face in normal times, that is, before COVID-19. For asylum seekers, you know, often you come here fleeing for your life, but you don't know the place, the laws. Um, possibly the language. You don't know who to contact or where to go to get help. Your survival is still at risk. Uh, You're basically living this continuous experience of forced displacement. Before we go further, let's revisit the difference between a refugee resettled to the U.S. and a person seeking asylum in the U.S. Both groups of people go through a process to determine whether or not they meet the official definition of a refugee, that is, someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. The key difference is the process and sequence through which that protective status is granted. Refugees obtain protection from the United Nations while they are still abroad and are resettled to the U.S. through a formal program that includes built-in federal support during their initial period of resettlement. Asylum seekers take a different route in order to prove that they meet the same definition. For an asylum seeker in the U.S., they have independently made the journey here to the United States, and they are appealing directly to the U.S. government, saying, I 
have a credible fear on my life. I fear persecution or I have experienced persecution. And if I return to my country of origin, I will be persecuted or killed. So that is a very different process. And it's a very different kind of reception that they receive here in the United States. A second difference is the numbers. The number of resettled refugees entering the U.S. has been on a major decline from 85,000 in 2016 to less than 18,000 in 2020. And of course, the actual number resettled this year will be far fewer now that all resettlement has been halted because of COVID-19. The refugee cap gets set by the president, and the Trump administration has aggressively lowered it each year as part of its overall program to tighten immigration to the U.S. In contrast, between 200 and 300,000 people applied for asylum in the U.S. annually from 2016 to 2018. Since 2012, the national approval rate for asylum cases has gone from 55% to about 26%, according to data from Syracuse University. Asylum seekers are sometimes referred to as the hidden refugee population. Most often, they arrive in the U.S. without any immediate connection to community or social service agencies. And unlike refugees coming through UNHCR resettlement, asylum seekers are not able to access federal aid. And even though they're here in the U.S. legally, they're not legally permitted to work for a minimum of six months. The lack of supportive community connections, the delay in work authorization, and the inability to access federal aid programs such as food stamps or Medicaid until they are granted asylum status helps us understand some of the hurdles asylum seekers face during normal times. COVID-19 has made the importance of stable housing even more evident. A crisis like this brings into sharp relief for me why safe, stable shelter and supportive community is so crucial for asylum seekers. When a public health crisis requires you to shelter in place, but you have no stable place, and so many of the other agencies you receive support from are temporarily closed or have gone virtual, what do you do? There are around 3,000 asylum seekers in the Twin Cities and around 50 supportive housing spots, meaning beds, available specifically to asylum seekers in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and that includes the nine beds at Jonathan House. We routinely receive inquiries for housing that we have to decline because we are at capacity. Last week, I had to respond to an inquiry for an asylum-seeking mom with two children who was seeking to leave a housing situation with an abusive partner. Through their partnership with local churches who own the two housing locations, Jonathan House offers stable shelter and community for a handful of people seeking asylum in the Minneapolis-St. Paul region. Residents typically stay for one or two years and work with volunteers and members of the Jonathan House team as they recover from forced displacement and build a plan for the next stage of their lives. COVID-19 has inspired an even deeper gratitude for the donors and partner churches who make their work possible, but it's also inspired deep concern for the many people seeking asylum who still lack safe and stable housing. Um, I think for me, the burden is thinking of asylum-seeking individuals who are more, more vulnerable. You know, asylum seekers who may be in an abusive or exploitative living arrangements 
asylum seekers who are in closer quarters at homeless shelters or in overcrowded living conditions relying on hospitality from family members or friends. I'm especially concerned about asylum seekers held in immigration detention right now uh, where they have inadequate access to hygiene supplies or health care. I think if there's a COVID-19 outbreak in a prison facility, it's going to put a lot of vulnerable individuals at risk, not, not just asylum seekers, but asylum seekers included. It's also very concerning to me that court hearings for detained asylum seekers are moving forward during this crisis, often via teleconferencing. It's already challenging for detained asylum seekers to receive the, the legal, the mental health, the medical support that they need. And for those who have lawyers, having to have their lawyers represent them by conference call, it's a further disadvantage. Um, and I think it increases the likelihood that their cases won't be given the attention they need to support their claim of credible fear. You can visit the show notes of this episode for links about how COVID-19 has affected detained asylum seekers, other detained immigrants, and asylum seekers on the southern border in recent weeks. As residential workers who live in community with nine people currently seeking asylum, one house for men and one house for women and children, SJ and her team feel the pressure points of COVID-19 throughout the broader asylum-seeking community and up close and personal. One of those challenges is that while virtual hearings continue in many parts of the country for detained asylum seekers, all non-detained hearings through May 1st have currently been postponed. Though it's a necessary measure to comply with the CDC guidelines and probably a better option than moving forward with virtual hearings, it's still a painful delay for people whose futures hang in the balance. We've had a couple residents alerted by their lawyers that their asylum interview or their next court date um, will be postponed. And I think on the surface, this seems like a small thing, but there is so much that hinges on it emotionally, psychologically, and practically that that can always be a real challenge or a discouragement for um, someone who is seeking asylum. As a Jonathan House resident shared with me recently, until he knows he has been granted asylum, he's not able to move past the trauma of what happened to him back in his country because he has he feels like he has to relive it both in preparing for his his case, his asylum interview, but there's also always the concern that until asylum is granted, that he'll be returned to a place of persecution. Deferred asylum cases means more time separated from family. Sometimes it has impacts on work permit and possibilities for financial security, both for the individual and for their family back in their country of origin. The asylum wait is long and bewildering enough anyway that um, this additional delay can be uh, really disheartening. Thankfully, because of the strong network of support through local churches, state agencies, and other community organizations, COVID-19 has not created food insecurity or led to any health crises for Jonathan House residents so far. SJ told a few stories about how the residents have supported her as they all navigate new territory together. One of them was a story of personal loss. 
So here at Jonathan House, Frogtown, it is myself. And then we have three Ethiopian women who are in the 55 or older category. So they're kind of the, the grandmas of the house. And then I have a housemate who is in her early 30s from Cameroon. And she has a 10-month-old son. In sort of the, the three weeks that our nation's response to the pandemic was amping up, those three weeks corresponded with a three-week period in which um, my grandmother was hospitalized, put on hospice, declined, passed away, and then was buried. In that time, my housemates just ministered to me daily in all sorts of ways and across language barriers. You know, they would ask after my grandmother. They would ask after my family. It was very clear that they were praying for my grandmother and I didn't really have a way to explain, you know, she's not going to get better. When she actually passed away and I had to come home and tell my housemates that she had died, they immediately burst into tears, as did I. <laughs> and um, I think it was just, you know, it was like rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Just like a really tangible, embodied act of love and compassion with me in that moment. It's just the daily act of being able to live together, to eat together, to have community despite our differences in a time where the landscape outside is shifting really rapidly. To have community despite our differences during a time when the landscape outside is shifting rapidly. SJ went deeper into this idea with a final image emerging from her relationships at Jonathan House. As we consider how to pray for and support displaced people in our own communities during COVID-19, it makes a fitting close to this episode. Several of my, my housemates crochet, and that's one of the things that they've been doing every day to pass the time while we shelter in place. And they don't always have easy access to yarn, so they'll actually take like donated knitted things like sweaters and scarves and hats and gloves, and they'll unravel them to repurpose into their current knitting projects. And it's, it's kind of funny, I think, particularly when something has been donated, um, but it's also resourceful. But it has been really kind of impactful for me to see all of these things meant for individual use getting unraveled and then knit into like a big, really huge, like colorful blanket that you could wrap around more than one person. And that's sort of become my prayer image for this time, you know, in what has become unraveled for our communities that um, by God's grace, you know, we'll be able to come together in a new way of being. Asylum seekers, citizens, um, refugees and immigrants all, and just kind of become interwoven in a new way to, to cover and bless our communities. 
As personal budgets and the ministry budgets of many churches and organizations tighten under COVID-19's economic implications, it's imperative that we all give sacrificially from whatever means we have to care for society's most vulnerable people as we ourselves would want to be cared for. You can learn more and donate to Jonathan House at msp.iafr.org. That's msp.iafr.org. All donations support the daily living costs of Jonathan House residents. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Thanks to Josie Seibert, Hannah Bonifacius, and Alana Murphy for editorial support on this episode. 